wasn't obstinacy, it was fear. My big rot Shep mix, who would tackle a one-ton bison or a wild mountain lion, was scared stiff. I heard what frightened her before I saw it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Wicked Garden Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and on the show with me tonight is Witness Jay. Hey Jay. How you doing? Good. In 2004, in Indonesia, on the island of Flores, some archaeologists from Australia made a startling discovery in a cave called the Liang Boa Cave. They were in there and they were actually just trying to dig up some stone tools from the local natives and try to figure out what was going on with the, with the tools that they had. And they came across a skeleton that kind of changed things in a big, big way. And what we pride our show on is we like to present these different legends and, and monsters and things of that nature. And we try to tie them back into the possibilities of science. You know, maybe these things could actually be real and maybe actually they're a little bit more than a legend. And we'll be back to lay out some of those ideas right after this. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that's in the paranormal realm today and, and that's big and popular. One of the things that's real popular right now is Hellier. Yeah. And, you know, specifically, um, some of the things that we want to talk about today tie back more into the monster aspect of it than the magic aspect. But, you know, one of the legends we want to talk about right at the beginning here before we bring in, you know, the goblins is we want to talk about the Albatwitch. So the Albatwitch is a legend. It's actually a legend from Lancaster County and from out near York, PA. And a lot of people who listen to Tim's show will be familiar with the Albatwitch. You know, yeah, strange familiars. Yeah, if you listen to strange familiars, you'll be you'll be familiar with it. But the Albatwitch itself uh, is anywhere from four to five feet tall, 
It's a hairy creature. The difference between it and the Bigfoot is that it's smaller in stature and it's a little bit more thin, especially thinner at the shoulders and the hair is predominantly black in coloration. And, you know, with Albatwitch Day and that whole legend out there, one of the guys that's the most expert on the subject is Rick Fisher. And Tim's talked about him on his show as well. And I've talked to Rick before. And then also Chris Vera. Uh, who is Rick's partner. And they're the guys that actually put Albatwitch Day on out there. And I've been to Albatwitch Day once. Uh, I think I'm actually going to go back again. Got the chance to meet Tim. Did not get the chance to meet Rick because he was actually in a lecture. And we were in a time constraint to get out of there. But there's a lot of stories from out in that area about a creature who, as late as like the 1800s, was seen out there. And let's talk about the name, the Albatwitch. What's that mean? Well, it actually means apple snitch. Or it may be a bastardization of apple and witch together. And then it could also be derived from the German, which means elf. So it could also be derived from there. But this creature, like I said, stands four and a half to five foot high. It's extremely hairy. It's been seen. And actually, I have Rick's map of Albatwitch or Little Bigfoot sightings, which is pretty crazy uh, that, you know, he has made this map over time. Uh, so I've got this thing here. I'm going to pull it up. There are about 11 different sightings on this map itself. And let's see here. Trying to get it to come up. While we're waiting for that to load, we could be talking about a ping or a festival just by saying that with Switch. And actually, the the legend actually derives from the Susquehannock Indians who were out there mm-hmm. along the Susquehannock yeah. River. And uh, one of the things that was kind of cool is they had a hairy creature on their war shields. We know this, uh, you know, from some some war shields that have been recovered. And they had a hairy creature on there to begin with. So no kidding. Yeah. So you know, that's did, pretty interesting. Yeah. Did they believe in this thing? Uh, you know, what did they believe in some type of hairy creature? So we know that they had that out there. And one of the places that was kind of hot out there in the 1800s was a place called Chickie's Rock, which is right along the river there, right near Columbia, PA. And up on top of the rock, they would have bands and they had a little bit of a picnic area. You know, this is like in the 1770, 1780 range. And uh, they would talk about how these hairy creatures, you know, they would have these picnics and these hairy creatures would jump down from the trees and they would run over and steal the apples and then throw the apple cores back at the people. Now that's pretty insane for, you know, 1780 1770s type time frame that these things may have still yeah. been around and that was one of the legends there's been a couple modern day sightings there's uh, sitting here looking at rick's map there are about let's see here actually it's more than 11 it's more along the lines of like 13 different sightings and they go all the way up from lower new york uh, one in jersey some in eastern pennsylvania some in western pennsylvania so this is all the sightings where this little Bigfoot has been seen or, you know, maybe possibly Albatwitch. And I'm hoping soon to get Rick on the show, talk a little bit more about it. But one of the sightings that's on here is actually Rick's sighting. He was driving down a road one night in his truck and his lights, he turned a corner and his lights went across something he thought was a child in the road. And when he got a little bit closer, he started to realize this isn't a child. It's, it's completely hairy. And the eyes were yellow. He said it was somewhere between four and five feet tall. And it looked at him, they locked eyes. And then he says that the creature didn't run away, didn't run into the forest. It just simply disappeared. And there was another story that uh, his partner, Chris Vera, tells, you know, when you're out there and when you when you talk to those guys. And actually on the tour bus that they have out there, they do this. Chris tells this story. He had a friend that lived on the other side of Chickie's Rock, and he and his brother were playing hide and seek in the woods. 
And as they were playing hide and seek in the woods, the one was looking for the other brother. And this creature came and pinned him up against the tree. He said he was face to face with this thing. And he was a 10 year old child. So it was as tall as him at 10 years old and had him pinned up against the tree. And just when he thought maybe something would happen with this thing, uh, his brother happened along and screamed out his name. And the thing took off and ran into the trees. Yeah. Pretty amazing sighting, right? Yeah. Both those are creepy. Yeah. Now, what's cool about the area out there in Columbia is there's a lot of little cave areas. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, caves on the other side of the river. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So there there is a lot of different places where this thing, you know, could hide and could still be hiding to this day. But there's, a, there's an actual festival. You can go to it. It's in Columbia, PA. It's usually in October. It's a great time. I would highly suggest going out there. And uh, I'll probably just take a couple of these stories here. Here's one from Catawissa, PA. Here's another one. Little Bigfoot sightings in Lancaster and York counties. Catawissa, PA, Columbia County. Description, 2 a.m. Two friends camping for the night heard a wheezing or screeching sound and then a loud scream. From a distance of 50 yards, they saw a large creature about five and a half foot tall, which started running at a great speed toward them. They ran out of the area and back to their car and took off. Uh, this one is from Point Pleasant, PA. So not Point Pleasant, West Virginia, but Point Pleasant, PA. And this is a daytime sighting. Teenage camper had a feeling of being watched after getting off her bike and saw a wild-eyed, restless, dark, five-foot-tall creature moving back and forth with its hands on a split-rail fence. It had a hairless face with the appearance of a monkey. She quickly left the area unharmed on her bike. So that's another story in a similar area in Pennsylvania. Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of stories. That's the Susquehannock Indians. But I think you're going to talk about some stories from a little bit farther up north. And I think the Wampanoag tribe had a uh, legend too, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a second. But I just wanted to go back to the Abbotswitch and Little Bigfoots in general. So think about all the sightings of a Sasquatch-type creature where the witnesses don't report a full-size Sasquatch. They always say it's like a juvenile Sasquatch. What if they're not juvenile at all? What if it's a completely separate species? I'm not sure there is, you know, juvenile Bigfoot out there. But what if people are reporting just a different thing altogether? Maybe they're seeing just a completely different creature. Absolutely. Maybe it's just something else. Then that number goes from about, you know, 13 to, you know, up in the hundreds at that point, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it definitely could be the case. A complete other species for sure. Yeah, so what I was going to talk about was the Puckwudgie, which goes back to a Native American. Oh, you know what? You know what? Let's go back to that again, too, real quick, right? So, you know, one of the things that is pretty unique about that area, too, out there in York County and Lancaster County is the apples themselves, okay? (laughs) There's a ton of orchards out that way, a ton, right? It's amazing how many there are. Like, out that way and all the way out to Gettysburg is nothing but orchards. To the point where when I made my cider, my hard cider, I would make a trip every year out to a certain orchard out in that area to get the apples and the apple juice from my cider because it was so good. The apples there are unbelievable. I can't describe it any other way that if you're ever through that part of, you know, southern central Pennsylvania and you're out there, you know, in the late uh, summer and early fall that you actually get one and taste it. It's unbelievable. They have so many different varieties out there, and it's just something about the soil. They're just delicious, right? They are absolutely, you can't eat one. You know, I I remember coming back from a trip with a buddy to Gettysburg 
um, for his birthday. We went out and we did this, you know, the tour and we had some beers and the next day we woke up, took a ride out. You know, I didn't want to go straight home. So I took a ride out a little bit west of Gettysburg and we actually hit a fruit stand. And when I got there, it was really early. I actually helped the guy move out some of his, you know, stuff out front because we were there so early and uh, bought uh, like a, a little bushel, like a half bushel of apples. They were gone by the time we got home. I had to drop him off in Northeast Philly and they were gone. I mean, we, we didn't even know we were doing it. We re, that's how good these things are. Something like that is, <laughs> it's so sweet and such a luxury for, for a creature like that. They probably can't, you know, see it and turn it down. That could be why they're taking these chances and coming out in the open, you know? Well, yeah. And then you talk about a creature like this, it's not huge. So, you know, you get back to a Sasquatch is one of the biggest arguments you'd mentioned to me. What do these giant Sasquatch eat, you know? Yeah. How do they sustain themselves? But, you know, when you have a smaller creature like that, maybe apples are enough, you know? Absolutely. Sure. And there's Especially so much. Especially if you're, like, hoarding them off to a cave system or something. like. Yeah, yeah. And you know what it is? The climate's just – here's the weird thing. That, you know, you're down there at Mason-Dixon line, and the climate is just good enough to really have just tremendous produce out there all together. You know, so there's a ton of stuff to eat down in that area that's wild grown. So it could be one a case where that's just a really, really good area for them. And at the same time, there's a lot of caves. You know, there there's just a lot of cave areas. There there was another there's a couple other parks out there. One's up on I think it's called Panther Road, uh, that we had stopped at at one time and we walked through it and, and what it was was there was an old mine there, uh, that they had, you know, barred over and now it was full of bats. But there's all kinds of old mines in that area, too, as well. That's something to be living in. There's definitely shelter. There's definitely water. And there's definitely enough food, which is all this thing really needs, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so so let's go to the Pukwudgie, like you were saying. It's, but the interesting thing about the Pukwudgie is it's a very similar creature. And now we're talking about the Wampanoag Indians. You know, so it's a little yeah. bit further up. and. I guess the hot spot for it really is like that whole Raina, Massachusetts, Bridgewater Triangle area, right? Well, I think that's where it's super popular, but it actually, you know, it goes down as far as Texas, like wow. as north as Canada. Really, the origin story is like Delaware. Really? So, yeah, but the uh, Bridgewater Triangle, Massachusetts, man, which, which I'm sure our listeners are familiar with because it's just a paranormal hot spot in general. Yeah. Yeah, that's where it's become more associated with recently, but it does have its roots in Delaware. Huh. I did not but know what that. It is, is, yeah, as far as like the physical characteristics of it, it's a little bit different, you know, than Albert's witch because it's not considered hairy. It's usually described as gray and smooth, which, you know, a lot of our listeners are going to, you know, associate with the grays, like a classic gray. Right. But like, it's more it's, like a troll it, look. Yeah. It's more of more of a goblin type troll gremlin creature. You know, it's it's got large ears. The eyes are usually blue. It, you know, in folklore and Native American mythology, it's just a very tricksterish type creature. They used to have a good relationship with humans, but something went bad somewhere along the way, and it became associated with, you know, as an evil type being, or mischievous at the least, you know? Right. One thing that's uh, super commonly associated with it is suicides, specifically cliffside suicides. Really? Yeah, so a, a big thing is where people are lured out to these cliffs by whistles or maybe the mimicking of a woman in danger or a crying baby. Also, kidnappings are very heavily associated with these things. Wow. Babies that go missing or people that get lured out in the woods never to return. Yeah, that missing 411 aspect of these creatures. But the cliff thing was really strange to me, and I, I just wanted to talk about it because people with no 
nothing going on in their lives or no indicators of suicide would be found at the bottom of these cliffs. And it was thought that these puck wedgies would warm out to the edge and basically just push them off. Huh. And that came up. That came up in all the research I did in every single case. It was these cliffside suicides. Wow. So that was pretty uh, creepy to me as well, but highly associated with cave systems and the mischievous part of, you know, stealing food, also using poisons and definitely kidnapping. Not so many reports of them. I guess they're picking up popularity due to some pop culture stuff going on with the. Right. right. Yeah. I think the Harry yeah. Potter. Harry world. Potter. I, yep. Yep. Honestly, I didn't know too much about it. I'd heard the name. But it's pretty much what you'd uh, imagine a classic goblin or ghoul, like a, sh- a short creature, they're usually two to four foot tall and not associated as hairy as much as smooth and gray, which I thought was super interesting with large eyes and large ears. Yeah, sometimes I think they're too associated with having like long hair on their on the back of their heads. Yeah, almost like a mane. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah, That's going to come in a little bit later when we talk about another creature. But it is interesting. They're supposed to have that long hair on their back and then also maybe also on their chest a little bit. But like you're saying, this was a creature that had a pretty good relationship with humans and it somehow it got soured. You know, I can imagine how it got soured. Maybe we were pushing into their area a little bit too much, maybe crossing some boundaries we shouldn't have crossed and started to steal food, steal babies, that kind of thing. But it's interesting, the aspect that's interesting about this and the way you describe them is the fact that they're outwitting a larger counterpart when you're talking about humans. That they're using their small brain and they're actually outwitting (laughs) these much larger beings, right? And and they're they're making them do things that they they wouldn't normally do. So they're they're pretty tricksters, pretty pretty mischievous. That's interesting. And you know what's interesting about it too is the way I'm tying this back into Jersey, we talked a little bit about it. There's a really not a really well-known legend here in Jersey, but I'm looking here at a book that I have that I absolutely love. It's called Chasing American Monsters, and it's by Jason Offit. And uh, Jason's been interviewed on a, a bunch of podcasts, but he basically put together this book of American monsters. There's over 250 creatures, cryptids, and hairy beasts uh, by Jason Offit. Once again, Chasing American Monsters. Of all the books I have, this is one of my favorite. It's absolutely a fantastic read. And one of the things he talks about in here is the Wimata Goonies. <laughs> so he's got a small paragraph on it in here, and that's spelled W-E-M-A-T-E-G-U-N-I-S, Wimata Goonies. And once again, it's another Indian legend about creature that's similar, and this is what it says. The Lenape, also known as the Delaware Indians, tell of the Wimata Goonies. So there's that tie back to Delaware Indians again. The little people of their mythology. These dwarves are about three feet tall and much like little people legends from around the globe, you don't want to make them angry. Although usually benevolent, if upset, the Wimatagoonies will use their unnatural strength and ability to become invisible to prank unsuspecting people, sometimes painfully. One legend tells of a hunter who experienced the Wimatagoony after he wandered off from his group. The lost hunter killed the deer, and while he was looking for his companions, a mocking voice called to him. The hunter crisscrossed the valley, trying to find the person calling to him. He finally threw the deer down in anger and rushed towards the voice. He came face to face with a Wimatagoony, who laughed and said he only called because he wanted to see how long the hunter could run carrying the deer. <laughs> so you got that tricksterous thing too, but you know what's cool about yeah, that? 
is interesting about that is that mocking yeah no i was gonna i was literally gonna bring that up too man that seems to be like a overall like an overarching theme with these creatures we're talking about yeah yeah and you know what you look for more on this we montaguni uh subject and it's really hard to find it uh, like you won't find any newspaper articles or anything along those lines but you know historical lenape uh collections will have them mentioned Sometimes they're called the brownies, that kind of thing. But, you know, one of the things that I wanted to play when we're talking about this particular, you know, group of hairy little guys in the woods here, you know, that are Indian legends, is Bill Russo's account of his Pukwudgie experience from up in the Ridgewater Triangle. There's a clip of it on the Internet, and uh, I'll play that for you now. As Sam and I cut through the backyard and entered the high trees, darkness was instant and total. No street lights or starlight can penetrate the canopy of the rangy hundred-year-old pines that dwarf the power lines. About a half mile into the walk, we arrived at a break where a road cuts through the swath. Sam pulled hard on her leash and looked up at me. Her hair stood on end. She made not a noise, but trembled and looked at me for protection. What's wrong, Samantha? I don't see anything. It's okay, baby. We'll go home now. Come on. I tugged on her leash, but she did not budge. It wasn't obstinacy. It was fear. My big rot Shep mix, who would tackle a one-ton bison or a wild mountain lion, was scared stiff. I heard what frightened her before I saw it. Iwachu. Iwachu. Kier. Kier. Iwachu. An eerie call floated to my ears in the still night. Iwachu. So there's Bill Russo's account. It's pretty creepy, man. You got to say, right? Yeah, it is. It yeah. Definitely is. I love it. I That's a fantastic documentary, by the way. If anybody hasn't seen the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, definitely check it out. It's yeah, so, super well done. Yeah. So we were also going to talk a little bit about another set of little people that is more like trollish. And, and one of the things you were going to talk to us about a little bit was the goblin. Yeah, and that's why I kind of wanted to hit on the Pukwudgie first. What's interesting is if you just take away that mane, that hair they have, if you just take the hair away and you have a gray creature that's completely smooth with large blue eyes and ears and a nose, you have basically the Kentucky Goblins. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about Hopkinsville and Hellier right now. Yeah. So these creatures are also about two to three feet. The Hopkinsville Goblins resemble the Hellier Goblins, which resemble the Pukwudgie. But at the same time, you got the Hopkinsville UFO sighting associated with that. And I don't want to get into that too much. I just want to talk about the creatures specifically. But since, you know, we kind of have to talk about the UFO there. Well, a let, lot you know of what? these creatures let, are associated with lights. Yeah, let and, me let know, me interrupt you for one second, right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's a couple of things we should talk about here. And, and one of them is, you know, people's eyewitness accounts. You know, we know from doing, you know, what we're doing with, with the Barry show and from from me talking so much to the police that it's incredible how much people's eyewitness accounts are inaccurate. <laughs> like yeah. when people see things, they tend to embellish or not actually remember everything correctly. So I know one of the things, if we're going to talk about this Hopkinsville goblin thing, one of the things that's problematic from the standpoint of this thing, perhaps being a physical creature is the fact that in the UFO story, they talk about how they were gliding around. 
Yeah. Is that what kind of you were hesitating about? Yeah, that's one of the things. I, I think the, the main connection here is just the description is so damn similar that it's hard to discount that there's, you know, that they're not related. Because, man, the, the description is, you know, yeah. witnesses accounts of the creatures. Are, minus the hair, it's damn near the same creature. Yeah, and you here. remember this about that UFO encounter. You know, that was at night. They're saying they, they saw these things kind of gliding around and floating around. You know, how can you really say that you saw that in the night, in the darkness? I mean, you know, so I've always kind of discounted that about that particular sighting. Yeah. You know, Well, it, even, yeah, yeah, because I, I guess just to run it back for the listeners. So this Hopkinsville thing happened back in the 50s, I believe. It was actually two families, and it, it started with lights, and then it ended up these creatures, these Kentucky goblins basically just floating around, tapping on the windows, and one actually swiped at one of the guy's heads. But it was two families, and when you go back and listen to interviews with these families, they almost have two separate accounts. So you got one group saying these things are, like, floating around like they're swimming through water almost, and then another one where they're, like, climbing the edges of the house, and, you know, they're up on a roof, and they're scurrying off on the ground. Exactly. So they're not exactly – the accounts don't match as much. No. And then the Hellier Goblins, which, you know, Hellier the documentary is another thing, another documentary I'm sure our listeners are familiar with. And if not, I mean, definitely check it out. Absolutely. I do like uh, Greg and Dana, but I don't agree with every part of the documentary. I think some of it's a little uh, overreaching. Yeah, they see synchronicities everywhere they look. And, you know, that can be, it can be a little off-putting with like season two. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of stuff, though, that is pretty compelling. Yeah. So where Hellier is, is another town in Kentucky, like Hopkinsville, where you have the same kind of creature, even where footprints are associated with. But what I want to talk about is something that we've talked about with every one of these creatures so far is basically caves and cave systems. Right. So Kentucky, like these parts of Kentucky are on like a huge karst system. And karst is a type of rock that's weathered out. It's a lot of limestone involved. But it's huge cave systems, like miles and miles and miles of caves that are all interconnected. Yeah, they run actually the complete length of the state and into Tennessee. Yeah, it's wild. If you look at the map, it's pretty wild, these these cave systems. And a lot of these older houses and these towns where you have these kind of sightings in Kentucky, they're always, always mining towns. Right, and they're always caves close. And a lot of these guys close. have mines like yeah. right in their backyard. Uh, there's there's mines and caves associated with all of these reports, and it's it's just crazy that you know you have these kind of creatures that are again moving in packs. They seem to be outwinning humans. Yeah, well, they're the significance of that, the significance of that is shelter. You know, they have adequate and more than available shelter. You know. With yeah. these limestone caves. And when you think caves. about the physical characteristics, like you something that you would expect to find in a cave, you'd expect to see large eyes, you know? Right. You'd expect to see gray skin because, you know, they're not getting the vitamin D if they're living in the cave. Right. You know, that's the sort of things you would expect. Well, now, let's talk, talk about, about the ears. Goblins. Let's talk about the ears yeah, exactly. real quick, right? You know, the reason they have those pricked up and triangular ears is because, you know, our ears don't move very well, right? If you want to hear something, you got to move your head. But- you know, dogs, wolves, coyotes have that pricked Cats, ear, yeah. triangular ear, because they can very easily refocus that ear, remove it to, you know, pick up different sounds in different areas. So it, it's a more survivalist type ear, you know, and a more hunting type ear that they can, you know, pick up on sounds that maybe we can't. So with the exception of the albatwitch, both the other creatures that we talked about so far have this pricked up ear, and that could be why, you know, so that they... They're, they're more sensitive to sound. 
Exactly. So we know that from an evolutionary standpoint, especially with like small predatory animals, like you say, with the triangular ear. And then think back in into folklore, into some of the legends that, you know, are associated with these creatures we're talking about. Goblins, usually uh, elves, for example, all pointy ears. They all have that triangular ear. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of odd, right? Yeah. That all the artwork represented has this pointy ear. It can't be. You know, it can't be just a uh, weird synchronicity that they all have this crazy pointed ear. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just too similar to discount, you know? Right. I don't necessarily believe in every cryptid out there. And, you know, when I speak about, you know, Bigfoot and Sasquatch, I'm speaking in theoretical terms. I don't necessarily believe that, to be honest with you. But it's just very funny how all these creatures, there's similarities that make a lot of sense. Right. Their associations with caves and the trickster aspects of them. Yes. It's, it's too much to discount. And the out, outwitting so, their, their human counterparts. And here's the other thing about that, G, too. Think about how all that folklore and artwork was developed, you know, pre-printing press. Okay. So, you know, somebody who, who drew a prick-deared elf in Norway, you know, 1200 or 1300, you know, that didn't migrate over here via a book so somebody could look at it and draw their own version of it, right? I mean, these are people that are, they're doing these depictions and they're doing them in place and it's not being shared in other areas where the same type of picture is being drawn. So exactly, it it wasn't because of books flying around, you know, that can't explain it. Did you ever play the whisper game in school? Yeah, absolutely. Whisper down the line. Yeah. So it's the same exact thing, except with artist renderings of these creatures, you know, and their descriptions. It's the exact same thing. It they, starts out one way, was probably, you know, a witness account, and they're drawn to the best of their ability. By the time that story's told to another artist who tells it and another artist picks it up, just the descriptions changed to the point where you have, you know, common elves, leprechauns, which we're going to talk about briefly. And these creatures, there's dozens and dozens of creatures and cryptids that, are, that yeah. meet these kind of similarities. Yeah, they're you, just similar across the board. We're only talking about a handful of them. Scratching the surface. And again, we're, we're only talking, as far as <laughs> goblins go, we're talking about Kentucky goblins here that goblins in general are a phenomenon that pops up all over the world. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen the, the Boggart in Scotland being represented as a goblin like creature. Although, you know, in Harry Potter pop culture, it's a shapeshifter, but I've seen depictions of it where it looks exactly like the Kentucky goblin. Exactly. Like it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's another thing too, is that you, you have to take pop culture into account, but at the same time, you can't rely on pop culture. Even the, the leprechauns we're going to talk about, what you have is pop culture has one way they describe these things that we just take as a leprechaun is a, is a little <laughs> Irish guy. He wears a green suit and he's got a shillelagh. Yeah. You know, there's lots of golden rainbows, yeah. you know? <laughs> but, you know, when you actually go back and get away from the pop culture parts of it and look at it, they're usually described as wearing red coats. And they don't have shillelaghs. They have swords. Really? Yeah. And they don't have a little top hat on. They, they usually have like a Donnybrook or like a, you know, a derby cap. <laughs> That's the way the old uh, leprechauns are described usually. Huh. It's not Darby O'Gill, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing I wanted to mention before we get off of the goblins and off of the puckwudgies, something you said really reminded me of something that I heard when I was in Idaho. When I was in Idaho and Utah, I had no idea about the other Native American legend, which is the water babies. And I don't, I don't want to get real deep into it because it's a show into and of itself. But to make a long story short, these creatures who resemble small children, right? And are more amphibious. They're more into lakes and streams and stuff like that. 
are known for luring Native American children and Native American, you know, adults too as well into bodies of water to drown them. And what they do is they mimic the human voice. And then also what they do is they mimic the human baby crying. And this is known as a water baby. And it's very, very popular legend out in Idaho and in Utah and a lot of other areas of the country too as well. Another one I want to talk about briefly too, before we get off that, is there's another creature in the Northwest, which is called the Buckwis. Okay. And basically it's the albatrich is exactly what these guys are describing. And what the Buckwis does is the Buckwis does a lot of the same things that all these other things do. They, they steal food. They lure you into some situation where you wind up perishing or getting seriously injured. They've been known to steal Native American children. And if you look at the description of the Buckwis, it's dead on what we're talking about with the Abitwitch. It's not so oh, much the Puckwudgie. Yeah, Little Bigfoot. Yeah, they have like a regular Bigfoot legend out there. And then they also have one that's more along the lines of maybe like four to five foot tall. And that's, you think about that. Okay. That's an Indian tribe in the Northwest. And the Albatwitch is the Susquehannocks who are, it's on their war shields and they're in Pennsylvania, you know, thousands of miles away. And we know that these tribes most likely were not in contact with each other yet these things persist right i mean they have this artwork they have this depiction that they describe and they have this behavior of this creature which is very very simple yeah it's a trope yeah kind of crazy it comes up in independent cultures they've probably never been associated with each other you see the same thing and you can't just discount that you know no no yeah it's your stories about the leprechauns are, are are very interesting and I do want to say, like, one of the origin stories of the leprechaun, like, one of the first known reports of a leprechaun, it was a kid that fell asleep on a beach, I think, in Northern Ireland. I don't, I can't think of the name of the town. But uh, he fell asleep on a beach, and he woke up being pulled into the ocean by three leprechauns. I mean, if that don't sound like a water baby, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, right? That is interesting. Yeah, so. Did not know that, that so, it was kind of associated <laughs> with water babies. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the first reports is uh, just these three leprechauns pulling this kid out to the sea. Wow. Yeah. And then he gets away. And then, you know, you have a whole and whole other aspect that I'm not even going to – I'll just briefly touch one. I don't even want to get into it. It's not even a whole other show. It's a whole season, basically. <laughs> but you have the, the wish-granting aspect of the leprechauns. If you can catch them, you get your three wishes. Right. And that, what's that sound like in the paranormal world? It's gin. And I don't think there's anything out there that's as scary as the gin in my book. Right. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the reason we stayed away from the magic in Hellier and the reason we wanted to, you know, kind of downplay, you know, the goblins floating and things of that nature is because we like to pride ourselves with this show is taking pieces of what you hear in the paranormal and maybe kind of tying it back into scientific possibility. You know, could what we're talking about actually exist? Look, it's fun to talk about this stuff, right? We talk about it. All of us, we enjoy talking about this subject. We've been collecting it. For me, I've been collecting this stuff since I was six. So almost 50 years, you collect this knowledge, you know, you think about it, it the possibilities are endless and it's fun. But, you know, what can actually, when you get to be my age, you start to wonder about what can really be tied back into actually maybe being possible, right? What What is is could be real. So we started off the show talking about Homo floresiensis. Okay. And that was the creature that the Australian archaeologists uh, found in that cave. Um, 
you know, on the island of Flores. And when they first found that creature, they didn't know what they had, but they took a look at it. And what they saw was they saw this little tiny skull. And they were sort of kind of like thinking, okay, well, you know, maybe this creature had some kind of disease that, you know, stunted its growth. Did it have microcephaly? So it had some some extremely small head for its size. They figured they had just found a human. They didn't know that they had found a whole new hominid. But what they found in the cave alongside that, you know, that was that skeleton was called LB1, and it was a female. The skull was very small, and the stature of this thing was about three and a half foot high. And here's the thing. This creature was found alongside stone tools, which were thought to be more of something that a larger hominid would be able to use. Because once again, remember, this small skull means small brain. And small brain means doesn't have the capacity for tools, okay? And then also what they found in this cave as well is they found animal bones. And they the animal bones that they found, one was from dwarf elephants, which I think were called stegodon, if I'm correct. So they were, they were stegodon, and they found bones from those. They found cut marks in those bones, and they found some of those bones were actually burnt. And they noticed that most of the bones of the stegodons were, you know, juvenile stegodons. So... It became abundantly clear that these small-brained, small-stature creatures were hunting in packs. And not only were they hunting Stegodon, but they were hunting Komodo dragons because they found Komodo dragon bones as well. And the Komodo dragon bones they found also had cut marks in them. Some of them were burnt, which means they were cooked over a fire. So if you think about that, it means a couple things. It means, number one, they had the use of fire. It means also that they were hunting in packs. And they were hunting a creature in a Komodo dragon, which can spit anthrax and botulism bacteria out of its mouth on you and, you know, basically kill you. If you have an open wound or, you know, you get some of that in your eye or whatever, you're done, you know. So this is a really difficult creature to hunt. And actually what science believes is that those creatures were also hunting Homo floresiensis. So they were hunting each other. So if you're going to hunt in packs, what do you need? You need some sort of language to do that. Exactly. So here's a small stature creature with a small brain that has the ability to use tools that can hunt in packs, control fire, fashion stone tools, and use them. (laughs) And then also has the ability to use language. Says, hey, you know, look out, Joe. The dragon's turning towards you. You know, look out. So they know when to hunt and how they can hunt each other. And that was amazing. And you, yeah. with your background, can explain why, right? As far as Homo floresiensis, what you have is two branches going back about 400,000 years to about 200,000 years. You have one species that a lot of modern humans and archaic humans branched off of. And we would consider Homo floresiensis archaic human, but they're actually pretty recent. But what you have is Homo habilis is the start of it, then erectus. So basically you start to stand up. And we're sapiens. We're more associated with Africa. Right. And then you have your Eurasian branch. That's where you start to go to the Peking man, the Java man, and then later, this most recent, Homo floresiensis. So these creatures existed alongside us. Now, in our branch, we had first Heidelbergensis, which branched off into the Neanderthal and the Denisovans, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with those yeah. yet. And then we eventually became the sapiens. And we won out evolutionary-wise on our branch. But the ones that went out on the Eurasia branch was Homo floresiensis. That was the apex of that branch of Homo. And real quick, so they I, were. I think it's important to point out and underline a point that you, you made there. 
you know, this skeleton was about 18,000 years old. And you said yeah. it basically that means that it was side by side with us. Correct. And another thing that's not talked about often, but it's been proven, is that these creatures basically all made it together cross species right. and created different evolutionary lines. A lot of people you'll see on their DNA threads, they, they show up with a certain amount of Neanderthal. In them, Neanderthal you know? DNA, right. And the only reason, yeah. this is important to point out too, real quick, because if you've done 23andMe or you've done some type of, of DNA you know, sampling on yourself, which I have, you know, they point out Neanderthal DNA because they have Neanderthal DNA. They know what it is. Right. They know how, you know, they know the code so they can point it out. They don't have Denisovan DNA. They don't know what that looks like. They don't know what homo, homo floresiensis looks like, right? So as we get more more sophisticated with extracting DNA from these skeletons that we're finding in these samples, we may find out how much of our DNA is hobbit DNA. <laughs> exactly. For, and, you know, they're already speculating that that's happened with different pygmy cultures and just, you know, small people in general. I don't know about you, uh, but there's nothing like a hot hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I feel you, man. <laughs> I like a short woman. <laughs> you know, Bridget the Midget. <laughs> I don't know if anybody out there knows who that is. You yeah. should probably edit that out. Man. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jesus, dude. No, but it's true, right? I mean, like, look, when yeah. you're out there looking for, you know, a male is out there in the woods, what's he looking for? He's looking for food. He's looking for uh, water. He's looking for shelter. And he's looking for sex, right? Wouldn't stop yeah. him. It's especially a primitive man, that's for sure. <laughs> Sorry, I, de day, I derailed. <laughs> I derailed the whole argument. Yeah, or the whole. Nah, it's, uh... all, it's all good, man. <laughs> but, but yeah, so you have Homo floresiensis is very recent. It's very recent, and it could be about sixteen thousand. But I think the dating's from fifty thousand to twelve thousand. So oh, I wow. mean, yeah, in, you're right because they found more. They, I think they found altogether about eleven skeletons. Yeah. But since we were talking about Neanderthals, I should probably say this too. So a lot of people talk about brain size. So you have Neanderthals. Their brain was, was about 15 to 20% bigger than modern human brains. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're smarter than us. You know what I mean? Well, so, that's an argument, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. the old argument was brain size equaled intelligence. Correct. But these Homo floresiensis brains are about 15 to 20% smaller than our normal. But what they have is they're actually even smaller than a chimpanzee. Yeah. But what's crazy about it, there's something called an endocast, which is the type of fossil that forms inside of a brain case. Okay. So if you had a skull and you have minerals that start falling in through the eye sockets and into where the brain was, you end up with a fossil inside of a fossil. So if you break that skull open, you find something called an endocast, which is basically a fossilized brain. And that's what they found with Homo floresiensis. And what was pretty unique about it was the size of the cerebellum, which is the front part of the brain, okay. which is responsible for language and hand-eye coordination and being able to do things with your hands. So a lot of motor skills like tool making, for example, and the use of language is highly associated with that cerebellum, which Neanderthal was lacking, even though it had uh, you know, up to 40% bigger brain than Homo floresiensis. Yeah, you know what? So let, let me let me ask you a question with your experience. You know, what is the whole six hundred 
cc thing just the size as far as brain size so that was the old argument right the old argument was anything under (laughs) a certain amount of cc couldn't use tools language fire that kind of thing right is that what that was now that's what that that's what the argument was but now what they're finding out is is the size of different parts of the brain that matter okay okay and then another side argument from that is that it's it's all about the neural pathways inside the brain Right. So you have like Corvus, which is uh, birds like crows, uh, ravens that are extremely smart, they found out, are as smart as our dogs, cats, and pigs. It's just because of their brain is very small. Yeah, think about but the size have, of that brain. They have a super right. dense amount of neural pathways in that small brain that makes it just basically, it makes size not matter it's all about the neural pathways on that side argument. Now, here's what's cool about that. When we're talking about these birds these black birds and you said they're they're called what i think the corvus species okay. so large crows ravens and other black birds okay so now, now those what birds are they specifically not birds in general those specific exactly birds. and what are those birds known for they can mimic correct they can mimic they're very good mimickers and you know oh man i didn't even make that connection but like when you're talking about the the kids and luring things out exactly man right because you and i were talking about called- this we, we were talking about this. I, I have a, you know, I live very close to the water and on one side of my street is the bay. And then, uh, you know, two blocks, the other direction is the ocean. And mm-hmm. every year we have a turtle, a female turtle who comes out of the bay. She comes up the street and she wants to lay her eggs in my neighbor's shower. That's what she does. She does it every year. And you could almost set your watch by her. Okay. It's insane. And this year, I just happened to be home the day she decided to make her little journey, right? And it is a journey of about maybe 350 yards. And she come up. uh, I was sitting outside with the dog. I saw her. She was underneath my car making her way. And she has to go about maybe another 40, 35 to 40 yards to get to where she does this every year. And my neighbor will collect the babies up and help them back into the bay. Like they know this is going to happen. And this year when she came out, we've, we've had a tremendous amount of crows here this year, a tremendous amount of crows. We've also had a tremendous amount of, of mice because of two things that are happening on the island, right? Once again, this is idiot humans messing with the natural order of things. One thing they've been doing is they've been killing the foxes to protect this protected bird species up on the north end of the island. But we have foxes over the entire island from north to south. You know, they live in the dunes. They don't bother anybody. They play with a lot of people's dogs. They've never bit anybody. And these idiots. Yeah, they're almost domesticated there. Yeah. And these idiots are, are, are killing them because of this piping plover that lays its eggs in August and September up on the north side of the island. Okay. So they did two things this year. They started killing more of them. And so the foxes are gone. The second thing they did was they made an effort to take all the feral cats off the island. So they did that during the whole winter. This spring and into summer, we've had the worst season ever with mice. I went to the hardware store here. The guy said to me, Mike, I live on such and such street. I sit on my balcony at night. And I just watch the mice march down the street because there's no natural predator, right? For whatever reason, the crows have come in this year and they are everywhere and they are preying on dead mice. So they're, they're down there eating dead mice and crows hunt in packs. It's another yep. thing they do. So they communicate with each other. If you, you ever notice, all the other birds hate them. They run them off. You know, they're even smaller birds, and they're scared of smaller birds, and they chase them off. But that day, she came up to lay her eggs, 
my neighbor and I, because he was here, we were helping her and we were fighting off the crows. We were squirting our hoses at them until they finally gave up and left her alone because they were trying to go down and pick her apart as she came up the street. But, you know, once again, there you go. These, these small-brained birds have this mimicking ability and the ability to hunt in packs, and they're not supposed to have that if you go by the old 600cc rule. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Well, they can actually talk. They can. They literally have facial recognition, so they can recognize one human out of a bunch of humans, which is kind of strange. Like it's actually pretty mind blowing. Research has been having with the Corvids lately. Right. If you can befriend one and give them stuff, they'll actually start bringing you like little trinkets that they think is cool. That's amazing. Which, I, which that blows my mind. Right. You know what I mean? They're trading. Yep. Yeah. They have the ability yeah, to it's, trade. It's pretty wild, man. Yeah. So There's it bl- a, it blows. The one thing it does is it blows that whole brain size thing out of the water. Yeah, it does. That's something you have to just take with a grain of salt, man, the old argument, because new science has come along, and the same, basically, brain size doesn't matter. The way the brain's put together, different parts of the brain, and all those neural pathways is what matters. Right. So these little creatures, homo forensis, even though they didn't survive evolutionary, which maybe they have, maybe that's why we're having all these, these, these sightings and eyewitnesses counts, not just back in time, but up through modern times, you know? Yeah, and what does this get back to? Right. This gets back to what we always say is about how limited our senses are. Right. I mean, we we can't hear these things if we're in the woods. We can, we can hear out maybe 50, 75 yards. You know, these things see us coming. We're slow. We don't our vision isn't exceptionally good. You know, our, our hearing isn't exceptionally good. You know, it's the neural pathways in our brains, how we've used technology that keeps us at the top of the food chain. If, if you were to look at Homo forensis 12,000 years ago, let's say they were around 12,000 years ago. In modern man 12,000 years ago, they might have been smarter. They might have been more agile. You know what I mean? Definitely smaller, but it's, uh, that's it's what's too much good. of a discount, man. Yeah, that's what's so, going to tie me yeah. into talking about this last. I just want to talk about this one last legend. Okay, and that legend is the legend of the Ibu Gogo, which comes to us, by the way, from from Indonesia. So this is an Indonesian legend. And this has been a where legend. Where Homo floriensis was found. Where for Homo floriensis was found, where these these remains were, were uncovered, you know, by these Australians. This was a legend that predated that discovery. And this is a legend also that if you talk to the pygmies and the other people that inhabit that area now, they tell you that these things were around seven generations ago. So if you, if you extrapolate that out, a generation is about 30 years, 25, 30 years is, is what they're considering a generation. So we're talking 200 years ago. They talk about this creature called the Ibugogo. And here's how they describe this creature physically. They say that it has characteristics of humans, but also monkeys. It's very small in stature, two and a half to three and a half foot high. It has uh, some hair on the back of its head, and it has some hair on its chest. They describe the women as having an extremely long pendulous breasts. And the they describe these things as living side by side with humans for years, even trading with humans. And what happened was about seven generations ago in Indonesia, these things started, if you listen to the humans that are explaining what happened, because we don't have the Ibu Gogo side of the story. Okay. <laughs> the humans tell us that what happened was the Ibugogo, and actually Ibugogo stands for grandmother who eats everything. That's what it means in Indonesia. Yeah. So what happened was they started stealing food, okay, from the humans, and then they also started stealing children. 
Now, the reason that the humans say they were stealing the children, and this is key, and I thought about this for a while because it didn't make sense right away, but the reason they were stealing humans or human children was they wanted the human children to teach them how to cook, okay? So, like, there's so much that goes on with knowing the different languages, right? So maybe they didn't want them to cook. Maybe they wanted them to show them where food was. Maybe these things, you know, the stegodons had died out. They couldn't find enough Komodo dragons to kill. The humans are now sucking up some of the resources on the island, and these things are running out of food. So maybe they're stealing these kids to kind of, you know, say, hey, you know, wh- wh- you know, where are your, your parents going to get food? Because they can't take a, a full-size human, right? Because if they take a full-size human, it's going to, they're going to get overpowered. So they started taking these children to learn how to cook. All right. And the humans hunted them into extinction. Now, what they say is, what the official story on Homo floresiensis is, is that 12,000 years ago, there was a volcanic eruption and that that volcanic eruption wiped out the stegodons and everything on the one side of the island where the Homo floresiensis lived, including the Homo floresiensis. And they're saying that that's the official scientific explanation. They died out 12,000 years ago. But we have local humans saying that they were still alive seven generations ago. And And they explain when they were, when the humans on the island were told what the scientists said, they said, yeah, that had happened. But what happened was there were some of them that had escaped over to the other side of the mountain and repopulated and lived in other caves. So this creature could have been alive 200 years ago, maybe in 1820. Well, think about all the the Sasquatch theories that say that, you know, this is just a, a flesh and blood creature. There's an offshoot of Homo sapien that just is an isolated subspecies that's, you know, somehow managed to survive and lived in like and live in isolated areas and maintain distance from humans. You can't discount these tales of, you know, the Pukwudgie, you know, the Albatwitch and goblins in general. Or, you know, small elf and other kind of fairy fake type creatures is not being related to this homolophoriensis. It's the exact same argument. It could have survived. It could still be around. You know, it's it's the exact same argument. It so could be related if, or it could be a totally I, different species that had a similar life, you know, life experience. You know, yeah, species exactly. experience. It could just be a completely different or an offshoot of that subspecies or similarly that survived. And due to its, its nature, I mean, you have these tropes that, that occur across the gamut of these cryptids, like we were talked about, cave systems, the mimicry, the trickster aspects. I mean, you can see how this actually happened with Homo floresiensis and how right. it lines up. Right. You know, and, so if you want to make the argument that, you know, Sasquatch is an offshoot of Homo sapiens that somehow managed to live away from humans, then you can't discount the argument that goblins aren't an offshoot of Homo floresiensis. Yep. You know? No, you can't. It's, it's, it's too similar, man. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you, I think a, a lot of legends and folklore and Native American mythology is has it completely right. I believe that a lot of those are real accounts. You know, right? You would because you would tend this, to believe them more. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. Like sometimes you think maybe it might have been there. Like a, I don't know if anybody's ever seen The Office, um, where Dwight Schrute had his German stories about things living in the woods, and it was so the kids didn't go running into the woods. <laughs> you know, so we'd have all these scary creatures in the woods. You know, I, I, I think there was a certain aspect of it that with that, you know, but at the same time, there had to be a kernel of truth in there. I'm not familiar with the office, but I, yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense though. 
<laughs> yeah, they went over the top and they did like this comedic version of these German fairy tales, you know, and they had these crazy monsters and uh, office people will get it. <laughs> but yeah, but, it's, I mean, yeah, that's basically what Grimm's fairy tales are, man. It's all like yeah, it's these, good point. Uh, good point. Know, scary, scary tales for kids. Yeah, that, uh, you know, it's basically to keep them safe. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, you know, also something we didn't talk about is we didn't talk about Foster's Rule. Um which is something that we we could talk about a little bit here too that kind of helps explain why something may have decreased in stature. Um warm-blooded animals who wind up on islands or in, you know, secluded areas tend to grow smaller to adapt to their surroundings. Cold-blooded animals actually in a smaller environment like an an island environment will actually grow bigger. Hence the Komodo dragon right it grew bigger and it's in its smaller environment and it does that to pick up a, a distinct advantage over something else that's on there but what it proves is that there's all kinds of evolutionary rules and laws and things that go on that we don't understand and i think we're getting better picking some of that stuff up so there's a whole lot of microevolutionary things we try not to we tend not to think about the humans in general as being different species but honestly we are I mean, we are like parts of different species. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's all basically shaking out to one modern human, but you know, when you have certain evolutionary, like if you want to talk about an Island where maybe smaller people survive better than through survival of the fittest, those are the type of people that will survive and breed are smaller people, which right. will give way to smaller people, you know? Exactly. It can go in the other and direction. You got to take into account mutations and everything else, man. It's, it's, Humans are pretty crazy. And the other thing I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about too is, is this, this cave thing. Okay. Cause I think people sit there and go, well, why would they want to live in caves? Okay. You go home to a house every day. You know, your dog likes his little, his little cage that he's in when you're out. Right. The best way to train a dog is to crate train it. And then over time, leave the crate open so that it has that option to go in and relax in its secure environment. Right. So that the cave systems can be their shelter and their secure environment and make them feel a little bit more safe and at ease. We see it and, everywhere know, with every mammal. If you get a hamster, yeah. right? How many people have had, had a hamster? And when you were younger, they had that habit trail, right? Well, where would your hamster be all the time, right? It would be in that top little tower thing, <laughs> which is the yeah. smallest possible space. You, you'd come down and you'd think he'd be down near the wheel taking a nap or whatever. No, it was always up in that top little contained space, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what they like. They like top, little contained spaces that, you know, protect them on all sides. And why would these things be any different? And, you know, we didn't really start making shelters till about 40,000 years ago. Right. You know, before that, that's what we had, man, was caves. It's, it's warm in the winter and cool in the summer. You know what I mean? Exactly. Of course, it's dark and damp, you know. But uh, I I would say we wouldn't be where we're at if it wasn't for caves. Right. Like caves has helped helped us get where we are. So you can't just discount that there aren't creatures still in caves. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we're basically saying today is, you know, a lot of these legends that you hear, Kentucky Goblin, you know, Albatwitch, you know, that kind of thing. There's no real reason that this can't be tied back into science. There's, there's no reason why it can't actually be a real honest-to-God physical creature. It really isn't. 
Good stuff, man. Yeah. I haven't heard anybody else talk about this. No. And, you know, I, I just, you know, what I like to do on this show is just take the paranormal stuff and see if we can tie it back in and, and if it can be a scientific possibility. I mean, and I do love all the paranormal aspects of it, definitely the folklore. And, dude, we could spend literally dozens of shows talking about just the Fae in general. Oh, absolutely. You know? Oh, it's it's a never-ending subject. I mean, you know, you get uh, fantastic books out. Joshua Cutchin has that book out about oh, the yeah. Fae. Fantastic book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. But, you know, a lot of it is legend, and a lot of it is a little bit over the top. Um you know, disappearing portals, that kind of stuff, you know, and who knows, we may get a better understanding of, uh, you know, physics and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe portals become a little bit more of a, uh, a possibility for sure, you know, and multidimensional stuff becomes a little bit less mysterious, but this, I think Homo floresiensis proves that the small, you know, people of the forest can definitely be actual physical creatures. At least it was about 12,000 years ago. Exactly. You know? We know that for sure. It used to say, like, yeah, you know? You don't need That's a large science, brain. Man. That's been proven. Absolutely. You don't need a large brain um, to to outwit humans. <laughs> you yeah. just need. So, I mean, literally, at one time, that you had about nine different types of humans existing like, right. alongside each other. And we're still finding we more and more. We think about it right now. Exactly. Yeah. And that's That's just what we know of. That's just what's been mapped. Like I said, the, these all these these nine I'm specifically talking about lived alongside each other, interbred, and all had the use of tools and language. And there's know? and there's known gaps in that too, as well, right? They know that there's gaps in in that and what they have recovered. They know that they're going to find more stuff. Yeah. It's amazing I mean, it's how we don't know a lot, blanks, but it's a lot more blanks out there than what's actually filled in. Yeah, you know, you only have a small. It's like you're trying to build a puzzle, but you only have 20% of the pieces, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's something too, that I think is, is really important to emphasize, especially nowadays. We see what's going on with this, this virus, right? And these breakthrough cases, you know, science is yeah. never, science is never settled. It, you know, it's, you hear a bunch of morons recite to you constantly. Well, don't you believe in science? You know, when they want to prove their political points, right? And the point is, science is never settled. It's always evolving. Always. Yeah, you get new data, you consider it. Yeah, it, just knowing that part of the argument, man, a lot of people are failing to recognize. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's always... It's, uh, science isn't one thing. It's it's a lot of things, and it's constantly changing. Absolutely. So if you default to science every time, you know, eventually I believe science is going to be able to prove a lot of this paranormal stuff. Absolutely. So, sure, we talk about that all the time. You know, we talk about the EVPs, you know, with the goofy EVPs we get where I get like my name. I think half the time I create that. We talk about that all the time. Well, you know, a hundred years from now or so, people will be sitting here with a lot more wider knowledge of, of these type of things. And it'll be a little bit less mystery to it for sure. And then it'll be like, yeah, that guy, Mike and Gene, man, they knew what they were talking about. They were all- <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 